0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Now,
1: Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord.
0: All right, you can be seated. Uh, I just uh, asked my son if he thought, since we're only doing two verses, if I'll preach any shorter today. He's, he's not confident that's going to happen. <laughs> so yeah, if you want to go to John chapter twenty. Verses thirty and thirty-one are going to be what we look at today, and that's going to lead us into a bunch of different places within the Book of John. But um, uh, we're getting to the end. We'll be—we uh, just have two more sermons out of Je- the out of the Gospel of John, and then we'll be—we'll have made our way through. In twenty twenty, we will have made it through the Gospel of John, and so uh, really have been excited about how God has worked in our church through this gospel. So. Um, uh, there are, God, I think, journals back there that if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can uh, certainly grab one off the back there. There's some, uh, some free ones back there that we would love to give to you. So uh, There's this super interesting guy uh, from the 1800s named Lou Wallace. He actually, in his early life, was a Union gen- general in the, in the Civil War. He went on to be a writer and a lawyer and a lawman. Um, and he's probably most famous for writing the book ben Hur. A story of Christ, a tale of the Christ. Um, The the genesis for that book was that he was on a train ride with a very famous agnostic. And they got into a spiritual conversation. And uh, Lou Wallace, I think, considered himself somewhat of a Christian, somewhat familiar with Christianity. He was never very serious about it. Uh, But this agnostic, his conversation on the train ride with this agnostic just made him realize he really didn't know the story of Jesus really very well at all. So that prompted him to then begin to do a a lot of research. He went to a lot of famous libraries and did all kinds of stuff, and essentially the Ben-Hur tale of, of, of Judas Ben-Hur, who is uh, who is set, is this fictional character that's set at the same time as, as Christ. Um, he's wrongly uh, accused of attempting murder. There's an accident that happened and uh, someone thinks it's intentional, and so he's put on this galley, he's this slave, and slowly works himself up and um, uh, up the ranks, He's an effective soldier, and he's seeking revenge for what's been done to him, for the wrong that's been done to him. And he has these chance encounters with Christ, and it ends up at the crucifixion. There's this massive transformation of uh, of Judah Ben-Hur. And so uh, that book was written in 1880, and it's never been out of print. Um, In fact, by 1900, it had passed To Kill a Mockingbird as the best-selling book of the 1800s. And so this story of Christ, this fictional story of Christ, uh, was really fascinating because there is something about the story of Jesus Christ that is just incredibly compelling, especially contrasted with the revenge that was sought by Judah Ben-Hur. We love a good revenge story, don't we? But these encounters with Jesus Christ gave him something better than this revenge. And Lou Wallace, actually, he talked a lot about how in his research, seeing this encounter, he was in some sense uh, writing himself into that. It wasn't exact parallel, but there are some par- I guess there are some parallels between his own wrestling with faith, his own experiences of feeling uh, injustice and wanting revenge and wanting to avenge and prove himself, um, and also with Judah Ben-Hur. And actually, he wrote in his memoirs that he said, I have seen the Nazarene through the eyes of this character, um, and I saw him perform signs which no mere man could perform. So there's some debate on well, how serious Lou Wallace became after this, uh, but it certainly was, the writing of this novel, this researching of the story of Jesus had a profound effect on Lou Wallace, and it was actually in the writing of this narrative that he was transformed, that he uh, encountered Jesus Christ. In the same way, what we have in the Gospel of John is we actually have John that has taken us through the story of Jesus. He has brought us into encounters with Jesus that he has had, and he expects us to transform them. Now, it's not a fictional character. This is real. Unlike Lew Wallace's story, where he's sort of writing himself um, into the story of encountering Christ, John actually did encounter Christ. And the Gospel of John is us seeing Jesus through his eyes. John never names himself in the Gospel because he doesn't want him, him to be the point. He wants you to see with his eyeballs and experience what he has experienced and come to believe in the Christ. Uh, We're at the end of the gospel. Jesus has just risen from the dead in in John chapter 20. And uh, and he's come to his disciples and they have uh, they've all been pretty doubtful that the resurrection has happened. And so he he goes through the line here and he ends up in uh, verses um, 19 is kind of where I'm sorry. Twenty nine is where he ends his conversation with doubting Thomas, who says That unless I'm able to stick my fingers in the wounds of Jesus, which is gross, I will not believe. I will never believe, I won't even believe my eyes. I need to touch Jesus. And Jesus, in his kindness, a week after he's resurrected, gives Thomas the opportunity. And we're meant to see ourselves a little bit in Thomas. We're meant to see ourselves a little bit in the disciples. That the same skepticism that you might have about the Jesus story is the same skepticism they had in that moment, right? And, and they were transformed and willing to go to tremendous torture and death Based on what they had experienced And John wants to bring us into that He believes that the Jesus story is so transforming That just us seeing it through his eyes Kind of getting himself off the table Us seeing Jesus through his eyes Will transform us Will transform us And so John's gospel um, At the end of verse 29 He says this to Thomas Um, He says he tells Thomas because you have seen me have you believed blessed are those who did not see and yet believed He's talking about us that there's going to be those that believe because of the witness of the disciples the witness of the apostles And uh, that's exactly what we have here and Jesus only pronounces a blessing two times in his gospel One is in John 13 after he's washed the feet of the disciples and then he commands them to go you are blessed if you go and do likewise If you treat other people with this kind of humble service, there is a special blessing. There is a blessing for you. But there's also a special blessing in John 20, 29, that even though you haven't physically with your own eyes seen Jesus, there's a special blessing for those who have not seen and yet believe. There's a special blessing for us. That though we didn't get to walk with Jesus like John did, we do get to, in some sense, encounter Jesus through the eyes of John and by believing there's a blessing. There's a blessing of eternal life for us, which then transitions to our text today. John 20, 30, and 31. Look at this. Two quick verses. Now, this is the transition point where John is like, this is where I want to land my gospel. This is where I want to land the story. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So coming off of that blessing for those that believe through the testimony, he then goes, let me offer the blessing to you right now. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that you might have this blessing that comes from believing. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I want to break this down into two parts, just so you can kind of follow along where we're going. Number one, verse 30, Jesus did more than is written down here. Jesus did more than is written down right here. And then we'll get to verse 31. What is written about Jesus here is sufficient to save. Not everything that Jesus did is written down, but what is written down is sufficient to give you eternal life That's John's bottom line here There, You know enough Of the Jesus story now To receive life in him Okay So Jesus did more than is written down Now Jesus did many other signs It says in the presence of the disciples We saw a whole lot more stuff Which are not written in this book Now that word signs Is the Greek word simeon Means sign And it means more than a miracle means more than just something wonderful, something awesome, something unexplainable. No, a sign is pointing to something. It's indicating there's significance in something. We've all seen amazing things that may or may may not really have any meaning. It was just a bizarre happening, right? That happens often. Um, We've maybe seen those kinds of things. This is more than that. This is more than that. These things that Jesus did are pointing to something. A miracle excites wonder, but a sign points you to some reality. A sign has an agenda. It is pointing to something. It means something. It reveals a pattern. It unfolds a mystery. And that's what John is saying is that Jesus did many signs that point to who he is and what he's done and why that means everything to you. John is trying to persuade us that these are not just cool tricks that Jesus did. He's not just Chris Angel or David Blaine kind of trying to blow your mind. He is doing things to point to realities, to a mystery that he wants you to get your head around. Jesus, Everything that Jesus did, everything that he said means something. It means something profound about him, about the world, about humanity, about you, about your eternal destiny. It literally all hangs on the things that Jesus did and said. So these are signs. They're meant to point to something. They're meant to lead us somewhere. So let's just camp out on the sign thing for just a moment. The word sign shows up quite a bit in the Old Testament. And it's fascinating to see where the word sign is sort of clumped in the scriptures. Notice that uh, in Genesis chapter 9, let me just show you this. After the flood, this is the flood narrative. God floods the earth, destroys humanity, except for Noah and his family, they come out, and God gives them a sign. And this is what he says in Genesis nine twelve. God said after the flood, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It's a sign that points to a covenant. God is going to relate to humanity in a certain way and I'm never going to do this kind of judgment again. And here's a sign to remind you of that. The sign is connected to a covenant. It's not just there to kind of remind us of something that happened. It's there to remind us of the character and promise of God in the covenant. Genesis 17, we have uh, God speaking with Abraham and he made a covenant with Abraham saying, through you will all the nations of the world be blessed. I will give you a son and that son will be a blessing um, to a, you'll be a blessing to all nations. And in Genesis 17, 11, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. This physical reality that's gonna point to something about your relationship with me. Exodus is packed with signs, Uh, the word sign. 22 times in the early part of the book of Exodus, in Exodus three through seven, where God's people are in, in bondage in Egypt. They're in hard physical labor slavery. And they've been crying out to God, and God sends Moses to go. And God, mo- God sends Moses with signs. The plagues that God inflicts on Egypt are called signs in the, in the, book, of, um, in the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus 7, 3 says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply many signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. He goes on to describe that. So these miraculous things that are pointing to a sign that God is making a new covenant with his people. He's making a promise with them. He's going to deliver them out of bondage. He's going to create a new people. He's going to bring them to a new place. And he is going to be their king in that place. There's these signs. Not just miraculous events to get our attention, but signs that point to a reality about God, about ourselves, and how we can be made right with him. In Exodus twelve thirteen, when God has actually delivered them with the blood of the Lamb, they put the blood over the doorposts. Here's what he says in Exodus twelve thirteen at the Passover. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So he's going to send the angel of death to kill the firstborn of every person in the land, both Egyptian and Israelite, everybody. But those who want to step into the provision of grace that God is giving, I will pass over you if you put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And it's going to be a sign to me that you're trusting in my deliverance. And I will pass over in judgment There's this sign, this covenant I make a promise that I will deliver you And here we actually have the sign It's almost like indicating to God Yes, when I see the blood on your door I will know that you're trusting in my provision of salvation And I'll extend grace and mercy to you I will not exact this judgment on you So this idea of sign is all throughout the Old Testament And it's clustered around these ideas of covenant Where God makes a promise to his people Uh, Here's a famous one, now that we're at time, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So these miraculous things that point to the fact that God is acting on your behalf to save you. And we have these signs, these miraculous signs. We have these things that are happening that are pointing to the reality of this. And that's what John is doing. John says in verse 30, right? Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. There are so many signs that Jesus did that we can't even record them all. We didn't even take the time to record them all. Indicators, miraculous indicators that God is saving a people, that God is extending mercy and grace. Not just cool things, but signs to draw us in. Um, It's really fascinating. This fourth gospel is not meant to be exhaustive, He's like, he's going to say this in, uh, in John 21. We're going to get to the very end of the book. And he's going to write this in John twenty one twenty five. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's mind-blowing. That Jesus, in three years of ministry, public ministry, did so many things that we would need a bigger planet to hold all of the amazing things that God did through Christ, all the amazing things that Christ did to prove who he is, to prove that there is mercy and grace extended to those who will trust in him. Think about this. John is fascinating because John is writing quite a bit after the other three gospel writers. He's probably the only one, only one of the apostles still alive. And so he's writing this gospel, and he's writing it with an agenda. We're going to get to that in just a moment. He's writing it with an agenda. And it's fascinating because John actually he the gospel of John has 92% new information about Jesus. So as he's writing about this, he's saying many other signs he did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Well, he's just added 92% of what he's done is in addition to what has already been recorded in the first three gospels. So he's already given us just a boatload of more stuff to know about Jesus. And even John is saying like, hey, I can only write for so long. <laughs> right. I'm telling you, there's a whole lot more to the Jesus story. I'm not trying to be exhaustive here. But I am trying to give you what you need to have life, to have life in him. The four Gospels together record 35 separate miracles of Jesus. All of them are signs that are pointing to the reality of Jesus, that he is who he says he is, that he came to do what he came to do, and it is to entice us. It's to draw us in to believing in him and in benefiting from what he has done. Scholars have concluded that the Gospels only record about 50 days' worth of Jesus' ministry in all the combined Gospels. I don't know how they figured that out, but that sounds maybe about right. About 50 days' worth of content. Which means that if Jesus' ministry was a total of three and a half years, that comes to about 1,080 days. Which means we only really have about 4.6% of Jesus' public ministry recorded. There is so much about Jesus that is not recorded. But what he's saying here is that what has been recorded is for you. This fourth gospel is not meant to be exhaustive, nor are any of the gospels, or even the Bible itself doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God. But it is inerrant, it is complete, and it is sufficient. The word is, and the gospels are. They're sufficient, they're complete. There's no other apostles wandering around to tell us more about what Jesus was like. So, the gospels are complete. This is what we have about Jesus. It's not everything, it's not exhaustive, but it is sufficient. And it is perfect. And it is understandable. And John is writing it with that in mind. Just in, these first, just in these few years of Jesus' ministry, he did so many things that the world itself would not be able to contain the books. So let's look at the second verse now. What is written about Jesus here is sufficient to save. It's sufficient to save. Look at verse 31. But these, he turns the corner, right? Many other things Jesus did. He ends with this whole Thomas thing. And uh, this weird encounter with Jesus, where he actually gets to touch the wounds of Jesus, and it transforms Thomas from going, "I will never believe, I won't believe my eyes, I'm only going to believe if I touch," to all of a sudden going, Him now claiming my Lord and my God." And then John takes that moment to go, "Here you go. Let me give you the offer. Let me extend the invitation. There's a lot more that I could say here, but this is a great opportunity to give you opportunity to, to give you the invitation to come to this Jesus. He's like, "There's so many more things I could say. you have heard enough you have seen enough look through the eyes of Thomas look through the eyes of John look through the eyes of the disciples these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name so John has an agenda the other Gospels kind of play it a little softer like they just they unfold the story they're being persuasive but John of all four of the Gospels is being the most persuasive I have an agenda Here's what I want you to do. He's very clear. The other gospel writers kind of lay out the facts. They have an agenda as well. They want you to believe in Jesus. But they're kind of letting that sit in the background a little bit. Just show you the facts and let you, uh, let you decide what to do with it. But John is going straight for the jugular. He wants you to believe. He wants you to know him. It's kind of like in speech class. You remember in college speech class? You had, to write, you had to do the informative speech where you just say a bunch of stuff about something, right? First three Gospels are a little more like that. They're just laying out the information and you make the conclusion that, that you think is appropriate. Now they're, they're doing a little more than that. But in John's Gospel, John's is the persuasive speech. I am organizing this because I want to persuade you. And from the very outset, in his at the beginning of, of the Gospel, he lays out very clearly, I have an agenda with this book. And he's just very clear on what his agenda is. I think John is writing... In some ways, he's not writing this just for fun. He's not writing this just to reminisce about the good old days with Jesus. He's not doing this to just show all these young whippersnappers how life used to be. He's not doing that. He is lovingly presenting. Hey, he's the last apostle left. He wants to add a little bit more to the story. And he wants to invite people like, listen, bottom line. Look at Jesus through my eyes and come to believe in him. Have life in Him, and this is this is that appeal to them. John is writing, I think, for a few reasons. One is to combat the false idea of, this, of uh, incipient Gnosticism. There was sort of this mixturing, mixing in with the Christian faith. This idea of separating the body and the spirit, and, and Jesus didn't really come in the body, and maybe our bodies don't matter all that much. And he's very much clear in his gospel here to make sure that people are razor sure, razor clear, very. What am I trying to say? They're very clear on who Jesus is. He came in the flesh. He had a body. You could touch it. You could feel it. He is, um, so he's battling a little bit against this incipient Gnosticism. He's wanting to expand the apostolic account of Jesus' person and work before he dies because he's the last one left. He's the last one that could give a little more information. And ultimately, it's this right here, to persuade you of who Jesus is and what he's done and by believing that you might come to eternal life go to John 1 for just a moment John 1 1 through 18 this is John's prologue this is his introduction into the gospel he lays out almost everything that he's going to talk about in the gospel he goes ahead and puts his case forward right at the very beginning these first 18 verses so as we're coming to the end of the Gospel of John and we've been on this journey we've seen everything that John is about has said we now could go back to the beginning and realize that he set us up for this from the very outset like a uh, like a like a like a A prosecutor at uh, on trial right his opening statement this man is guilty here's why that's the case right like a good prosecutor lays out his case tells the jury what he wants them to believe about this and then the rest of his argument is gonna be proving what he said right well here that's what John's doing John like a good he's trying to persuade us John 1 1 through 18 look at this in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God Man, he just goes for it right out of the gate (laughs) But came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So this is the creator God taking on human flesh. This is creator God leaving his throne in heaven and coming to earth. Um, Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Jewish people rejected him as the Messiah, officially. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So just 12 verses in, John is already going, here's, here's how this book is going to go. This is what Jesus' person and work, what his life and his ministry, it's all about this, is to make you children of God, by believing. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. That creator God, that is God and was God and made the world, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We have seen God in the flesh. And he has come to make a way for us to have life. To have the life that God has extended to unworthy sinners through what Jesus has done. So he's persuading us to believe in him for eternal life. You must choose. You must render the verdict. Has John persuaded you that Jesus is the Christ? As we've gone through this gospel, has John persuaded you? As you've seen Jesus, have you found the evidence persuasive? That Jesus is the Christ. Christ meaning the anointed one, the Messiah that the Old Testament promised. The son of God, divinity, in humanity, Beyond all reasonable doubt, has he done that? That's the life and death decision. Not for Jesus. He is who he is, and he has done what he's done, whether you believe it or not. But if you believe it, it'll transform you. It'll transform you if you encounter it. Like the Judas Ben-Hur, like Lou Wallace. If you'll encounter the person and work of Christ, specifically what he's done on the cross and resurrection, you will be changed. You will be transformed. John goes on to write another letter to a bunch of Christians um, called 1 John. And listen to what he says in 1 John 5. John is just so clear. He's got such a clear agenda for everything he writes. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son, by believing, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know... That you have eternal life. So it's kind of like if this this paper is eternal life, John is saying if you want eternal life, it's in the Son of God. So if you have the Son of God, you also have everything that's inside the Son of God, which is life, right? So if you have Christ, you have eternal life. The life is in Him. So take hold of Christ. There's no eternal life outside of Christ, but in Christ, you get the eternal life with Him, and you receive it by belief. And so he points to these signs. These signs are written. Let's look at these seven signs for just a moment. He's saying many other signs Jesus did, but these are written that you may believe. And let's just take a quick survey of the signs John has already shown us. There is some debate about which signs are which, but most of them are pretty clear. Most of them are pretty clear. So there are seven signs and then an eighth sign. Seven signs to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, to to prove the thesis that he laid out in chapter 1. He lays out these signs, these pointers, these indicators of who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means. John chapter 2, Jesus turned the water at the wedding of Cana into wine. He was showing that Jesus is Lord over his creation and that he provides abundant, joyful salvation for his people. Jesus is the greater wedding host. He is the bridegroom and he is the wedding host providing the better wine. He is Lord over these things created things. Uh, The second sign in John 4, 46 through 54, is Jesus heals the royal official's son at a distance. The royal official comes to him, right, and says, hey, I need you to heal my son. He's on his deathbed, and Jesus is going to go. It's like, I'm a man under authority, you know, and um, and all this, Jesus heals from a distance. Let it be as you have said. Multiple gospels record this, uh, what I think is this same event. So this shows that Jesus is Lord over, King over, space and time. Because he can heal at a distance. He can change someone's body way over here. He can speak a word. He is is master over time and space. The third sign in John 5, 1 through 16, Jesus heals the lame man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And there was this, this weird superstition that as the water would churn up, There was this belief that maybe angels did that and the first one in the pool would get healed and this man has just been there for decades and everyone keeps beating him into the pool and Jesus just beelines to him And, and asks him if he wants to be healed. The man has all these kinds of excuses and Jesus just heals him. Heals him right there at the pool of Bethesda. And it shows that Jesus has, and he does it on the Sabbath, which is not a day you're supposed to be doing this work, which shows that Jesus is the master over disease and bodies and over religion. He is the God of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord over these superstitions. He is greater than them. Sign number four, Jesus fed the 5,000 plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. This is picturing Jesus as a new Moses who is delivering the people and providing manna in the wilderness. Now there's a new people out in the wilderness and he is providing, which Moses didn't provide the manna, God did, right? But it's this idea that that he is the one who provides for his people in the wilderness. It exposes, um, or, uh, He uses um, his disciples to distribute the food to show that he is going to use his people to meet the needs of the world. Jesus is the new and better Moses. He's the savior. He's the provider. He's the deliverer. He's the realer, truer. He's the newer, the better. Moses delivering his people. Sign number five, Jesus walked on the water to the disciples as they struggled against the waves. Which shows again that Jesus is master over the laws of nature. He can just walk on water. He can walk through storms. He can calm the storms. He can do what no other human being can do. He is the one who made the waves, and the waves obey him. Sign number six, Jesus healed the man born blind in John chapter nine. This sign follows a discourse in chapter eight, where he makes the astounding claim, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he has this sign of making a blind man see. To show that this is what I do spiritually to people I, I am the light of the world I am the one who opens blind eyes And Jesus is the light of the world That makes the blind see And then um, sign number 7 Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead John 11 1-44 Jesus stated the meaning of this sign Of raising Lazarus from the dead With his words to Martha in John eleven twenty five. 25 He says I am The resurrection and the life He who believes in me Will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never but die. Do you believe this the bottom line is believe 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 But the point of the miracle is to lead you to believe to receive life in him through believing and Then we have the eighth sign we have this bonus sign in John chapter 20 the sign of all signs where Jesus himself raises from the dead All of these other signs it's like you know um, if you look at my wife's wedding ring or or engagement ring or whatever you look at the the diamonds and there are some accent diamonds on the side and then there's the center diamond right and those accent diamonds all are to kind of draw the eye to the big diamond and what we have is these seven signs all culminate and they they're meaningless without this last eighth sign which is that Jesus himself raises from the dead he himself raises from the dead this is the capstone sign this is the center diamond. This is this is the point at which Jesus has proven that He is the Son of God, that He is the one who can save, that He is the Messiah. And if Jesus has not risen, our faith is worthless. Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen, Jesus is the timeless, indestructible, eternal Master of life and death and everything. And these signs are written down in love from the apostle, so that you'll believe. So that you'll believe, because. Believing is what unites you to him. Believing is what unites you to him. Not your works, not your good religion, not your good behavior. What unites you to him is believe, faith, trust in him. And John's whole gospel, he has written a lot of words to get us to this point of going, notice the signs. If the signs are there to point you to Jesus being the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who's promised in the Old Testament, He's the king, the son of God, and if you believe in him, you'll have life in his name. That word life, Zoe, or Zoe, it occurs 127 times in the New Testament. If you put 1 John, Revelation, and John together, which are all three letters John wrote, over half of the uses of the word Zoe are are in John. John, this theme of life, 36 times in the Gospel of John, he talks about life. Life in him. Life in him. Life by faith. Life in him. Again and again. John doesn't want you to die. He wants to offer you a change, a, a chance at life. Eternal life. And he's so convinced that he's willing to be bold and clear about it. And he also is so convinced that he labors hard to be winsome about it. <laughs> he comes in and he's giving a winsome picture of who Jesus really is. He's not coming in with a stick trying to punch you in the mouth with it. He is appealing like These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Come, the beauty of Christ, take advantage of what he's done. So here's the bottom line. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, according to John. He is the Christ, he is the Son of God. Jesus offers eternal life in his name. What we mean by name is we're we're talking about his identity, who he is, what he's done. Your name kind of represents who you are, right? If someone says your name... They don't just think of, like, a title that you have. They think of everything that you are. So this idea of everything that Jesus is, everything that who he is. So when you have life in his name, it means that you're you're going all in on Jesus. You're following him. You're trusting him. You're receiving eternal life from him. And this is to all who believe. It's to all who believe. To all who believe. Believing isn't the point. Life in Jesus is the point. It's receiving Jesus by faith Faith is just the mechanism By which we're united to him I want you to believe Because in believing you become alive That's what John says And I want you to have a ch- chance to come alive So in conclusion Jesus is the word The word became flesh and dwelt among us And we have seen his glory glories of the only son from the father Full of grace and truth Jesus is God In the beginning was the word And the word was with God And the word was God Jesus is the Lamb of God next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Jesus is the Messiah the promised one of Israel he first found his brother Simon and said to him we have found the Messiah which means Christ John 141 Jesus is the bridegroom the one who stands who is who has the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now complete john 3:29 jesus is the living water jesus answered her if you knew the gift of god and who was saying it to you give me a drink you would have asked and he would have given you living water john 4:10 jesus is the savior of the world they said to the woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world john 4:42 jesus is the true prophet when the people saw the sign that he had done they said this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world John 6:14 Jesus is the bread of life Jesus said to them I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst John 6:35 Jesus is the light of the world Jesus spoke to them saying I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life Jesus is the door Jesus said, I am the door. I, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, John 15, 1. He is our Messiah. He is our bridegroom. He is our light. He is our vine. And he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and he is alive. He is alive. He wants to be our bread of life. He wants to be our living water. He wants to be our good shepherd. Do you believe... John's record about Jesus. That's really the point that he's leading us to in John 20, 30 and 31. If you do, then according to John, you have eternal life in Christ. Eternal life. If you do not, the implication there is that you still walk in darkness and spiritual death. That's what John says. You can take or leave that. It's up to you. But That is what John is saying. And this thing has been preserved for 2,000 years, right? And it has transformed so many people. And I wonder if in this moment you'll consider strongly who Jesus is, what he's done. Consider these signs. They're for you. John wrote these down for you. When Elizabeth Barrett became the wife of Robert Browning, her parents disowned her because they disapproved of the marriage. The daughter, however, wrote almost every week telling them that she loved them and longed for a reconciliation with her family. After ten years, she received a huge box in the mail that contained all the notes that she had sent. Not one of them had been opened. Although these love letters have become an invaluable part of classic English literature, they've been preserved, and they're kind of famous now as just great literature, these letters. It's pathetic to think that they were never read by Elizabeth Barrett's parents. And you wonder, if they had looked at just one, if the broken relationship might not have been restored they had knew the heart of the author if they had considered that if things wouldn't have been put back together and here's the reality god through the apostle john has written a letter of reconciliation to you sin has broken our relationship with god and you know it you feel it right things are not as they should be i don't know what you're thinking about i don't know what you think about god and jesus and all that stuff but john is holding itself out as a love letter from god through john offering you a chance at a reconciled life with god eternal life forgiveness of sins to have a shepherd for your soul to have a light to walk by to have water living water the bread of life that's what's being offered to you and it would be a shame to not know right to not know that there is a letter that has been written inviting you into a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So, will you receive the letter? Will you be reconciled to God? Let's spend a few moments in prayer. we know that you did many other things that are not written in this book. But that these are written, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. How simple and straightforward. Lord, I pray that right now we would just seriously consider what has been laid before us. Let's consider the fact that maybe this really is a letter from God. About what Christ has done the expensive price he has paid to bring us to you Lord. I pray that, that right now you would be working in the hearts of people and just bringing clarity to this issue and if there are some here today Lord who are deciding yes I want to follow Jesus this sounds amazing I'm in but they would do that before you now and, and maybe would share that with someone here and Lord those of us that have already made that decision Lord, help us to renew our understanding, our, our commitment, our wonder at what it means to be um, a follower of Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that You would stir every single heart in here over, over what this really means. These two verses, what they really mean, the implications for our lives, the implication for our souls, and may we delight that You're the kind of God who does this, and that we get to be, we get to experience it, Lord. Encourage our hearts with this. In Jesus' name.
2: Of love, what depths of peace? When fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, you. Curse and love!
0: All right, want to just grab a seat. We'll just take a couple minutes and entertain some questions if you have them. We uh, want to be a place where your questions are welcome. None of us have got it all figured out, and so if uh, anybody wants to ask a question, Justin.
1: Yeah, I have one question and then I'll open it up for anyone. Um it seems almost too easy that all that you need to do is believe to have life, and yet uh, often when I've talked with people about the gospel about Christ, you know, it's like often it's like, oh, I just can't just can't believe it, I can't buy it, you know. Even you know, the signs are often like whereas the signs of John's like these are supposed to help you believe. A lot of people are like, I don't believe that kind of stuff happens. So I guess and even in the Christian life, sometimes it's like, feels like, you know, really take hold of this stuff and believe it the way we ought. So I
0: guess why is it so easy and yet so hard? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's just so otherworldly. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so otherworldly. And I think God is doing things for his own glory. And so he's done the calculation in his mind, and this is what brings him the most glory, is to be the one who does the total work of salvation, to do all of the work himself, and not 1% of it is our contribution. You know, it's all of him. That makes him that much more glorious uh, to us, that it's not like we we can take no, we can take no pride that we've contributed anything, which means we just enjoy him all the more, right? And um, I, so, so I think it, the bottom line, I guess, is, is God has determined that this would be the most glorious way to bring about the salvation of sinners. And I think it would probably also be the most sure way. Because if you had to contribute 1%, he did 99%, you did 1%. How do you ever know if you've done the 1%? What if on certain days you're only at 0.9%? You, it just would be just be insane and chaotic to think if it was dependent on us, we would lose it. We would screw it up. We, we've got a, a, a lot, many thousands of years of, of, of Human history to show that if we can screw it up, we will. And so he has just done the whole work and just freely offers it, and it's just simply received as a gift of his grace. And then his grace actually transforms us. So I think the good works then come as a transforming work of his. Like, I just, I am so overwhelmed by who Jesus is and what he's done that I can't help but kind of want to go the direction he goes. You know, and that's why he says, Follow me, go the direction I'm going. So, uh, I don't know if that answers all the questions on why any particular, why any particular difficulty comes. I feel the same difficulties everybody else does. I don't know. I don't know why, other than the fact that God thought this would be the most enjoyable for Him and us. Mm-hmm. To put it this way, mm-hmm. I don't know. So, I wish I had a better, more specific <laughs> answer for you, but I think that's the bottom line answer. Mm-hmm.
1: It seems that since Genesis 3, when they didn't believe God's word about what would happen if they ate of the fruit, since then, we've always had a difficulty in believing what God says. Anything that comes out of his mouth, we're like, mm, I'm not really sure that he's got it right for whatever yep. reason. It's like a chronic human problem to
0: not believe God. Yeah. We kind of plunged down that rabbit hole. Didn't we? Yeah. In a, world, in a world full of yes, there was kind of one no. And now we live in a world where there's only kind of one yes which is jesus to get back in right and so but the but it works (laughs) just as surely as sin plunged us into the problem so surely jesus is the solution to that one problem right you know what i mean so yeah any questions yeah so this may sound snarky but it's not it's an honest question okay if I guess I don't know, I don't know I guess the, the four Gospels um, overlap and and expand on one another enough that I guess God saw that that was sufficient and I guess even the books itself in the world itself wouldn't be able to contain all the books so I guess this was where the line was determined to draw and um, yeah do you have a any- a good answer to that? I don't know. I, I don't know that my, I have a good answer. To my that. brain is, is. What's that? <laughs> I don't know that I have a good
1: answer. To that I have two thoughts. One is, if you look at like biographies from this time period, they're often actually pretty short. They're not very long, uh, so it's kind of like a classic. Like this is sort of the length of the book you'd expect. And I think the other thing is, is that when you look at John, as well as the other Gospels, they are. They're weaving their narratives into the larger Bible. So like the whole Old Testament, they're expecting people to not just read this, but to, they're always kind of saying, you've got to read a lot more. You've got to read volume one, which is Genesis through Malachi, and that will help illuminate and make this even richer. I guess would be the two things that come to my mind as to why so short when it could be so long. My guess is the other thing is, is that back then most people weren't actually literate. So you would have had to, to read it. You'd have to have someone read it to you. And so it would have had to have been able to fit into a, the reading the length of a few hours. And I think that actually it's a pretty powerful experience to just read through the Gospel of John out loud. And you actually see more connections because he cues it verbally rather than for someone who reads it silently. So I think that those are kind of, some of it has to do with the world in which the, the Bible is written. I, I guess it would be part of the way I would respond to
0: that but I don't know if that really gets where your question is no, pitching. So and John, yeah, John and all the gospel writers have given a lot of spots where you could double click and go, Yeah, you know, yeah. John has, oh man, how many oh, I forgot, I look, I saw it somewhere so many allusions to the Old Testament where it's like, I am the bread of life well, man, that's a whole another rabbit hole that you could go down, or I am the light of the world so there's there's kind of infinite excavation, you done. Yeah, just to kind of touch on that, that question a bit more. Uh, if you did have more evidence, do you think that you would actually even believe? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, 20 chapters of John, and John pretty well lays out the fact that, you know, I've given you stuff that's sufficient for our eternal life and then sufficient to know Jesus. So what we can conclude from that is the main elements uh, and the, I guess the biggest miracles that were most well known, he gave us. So, if, I mean, I don't think John felt the need to beat you over, you know, here's here's a whole entire list of 40, 50 more miracles that, that you're just not going to believe. So, I, I don't think by by adding more, it would have been even, you still wouldn't believe it. If you don't believe by the end, you, don't, you won't believe by more evidence. Just, yeah. 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 Can, should I repeat yeah. that for the live stream? Well, there is no live stream, so. Oh. You know, I you did. It. <laughs> it did not cooperate. Yeah, I think John feels like he's made his case and maybe he gets, you know, that that encounter with Thomas and going, this is a good place to land the plane. And then it almost like we'll get to this next week. It almost feels like a second conclusion, chapter 21, you know, because it feels like the book should close right here. Right. But we do have one more chapter. And then he kind of closes again with sort of the same kind of idea. So it's kind of funny. I don't know exactly what's going on in John's mind, but it was almost like. And we'll talk about this next week. It's kind of like in a movie when you watch the deleted scenes, and because you, you're or not the deleted scenes, but the credits, because there's one more scene at the end that kind of resolves a question you have. That's kind of what we have here in John. So, but then he comes back in, at the end of chapter 21 with the same essential conclusion that he had to chapter 20, which is there's more to this story. But, but here you go. I've made my case, and this is my contribution to you know, to the to the narrative. Yeah. I was going to add really quick. That's a that's a very Hebrew way of thinking. They'll say you pl- see it plenty of times in Proverbs, like six things got eight, seven things got a fours. It's saying this is not a complete thought. There's mm-hmm. more to this, but I'm going to make my point with what I'm making. So yeah. it's very here's here's seven signs. up, here's another. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a lot going on. Yeah. Cool. Well, we'll land the plane there, and I'll be around if you ask more. If you have some more questions. And, Um, I might just say I don't know, but I'll be be honest. I'll be honest with you and take a stab, and I'm on the journey with you. So, great. Thanks thanks for being willing to ask those. That's really great. Um, Our benediction comes from, uh, so if you'd please stand, actually. I would encourage you to connect with one another before you go. Uh, We do have a church app where you can get some information. You can go to redeeminggrace.info. There's a bunch of stuff on that table back there. There's an Advent devotional that if you like reading through a devotional, you can have one. Uh, we'd be happy to just offer that to you. Um, also, if you brought toys for Hannah's toy drive, wherever Hannah she's upstairs today. Yeah, she's upstairs helping with the kids. Hannah. There is a pile of toys over there. This is the deadline for that. So, if you were participating in her collecting of toys for the children's home, today's the day to drop those off. And um, let's uh, let's close with this benediction. First 1 Peter 1, 20 and twenty one. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. All right, connect with one one another before you go. Let me know if you have any questions. We're really glad that you're here. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.